Hey, cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs. And today, we're dining on some rock lobster. Hi there, I'm Claude Call. I've got trivia right after this. Hello, folk music fans. Gordon Lightfoot is one of the greatest folk rock artists ever, and now there's a podcast celebrating and discussing his work song by song. It's called Carefree Highway Revisited, and every episode, your host, that's me, Mike Messner, will examine one of Gordon's songs with the help of a special guest. So, if that's your cup of tea, why don't you follow us on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. That's Carefree Highway Revisited. Mike and I got together on an episode, which you can hear on his show as episode 15, or on my episode after next. That'll be number 152 if you're not listening in real time. If you're a fan of Gordon Lightfoot, you are really going to enjoy that show. And if you're not, listen anyway, and you might gain some deeper appreciation for his material. I do know this. There are few things more gratifying than getting a message from a listener who says, you know what, I don't really like this song, but the story you told about it was interesting. I learned a little bit. So check it out. It's Carefree Highway Revisited, and it's in your favorite podcatcher. So since we are covering a B-52 song today, let me do a little B-52s trivia for ye. There's a song that appeared on the initial pressing of their 1983 album, Whammy, that doesn't appear on subsequent releases. What song disappeared from the Whammy album, and why? Believe it or not, there's a weird little hint that you get during the show. However, I will have the answer to that question, and a little bit more, of course, near the end of the program. You know, I remember watching Saturday Night Live as a high schooler the night the B-52s first premiered on the show in uh, February of 1980, and the thing about their performance that I remember best was, was, it was it was just so stark. It had such an underproduced feel and it was kind of weird and the girls had these beehive hairdos and nobody smiled and I was just fascinated by all of this and as it happened uh, Rock Lobster was that first B-52 song that I saw and heard that night but let's back up just a little bit more the B-52s hail from Athens Georgia during a time when that seemed to be where a lot of bands came from but while most of those acts emerged from Atlanta Siblings Cindy and Ricky Wilson and drummer Keith Strickland actually grew up there. Fred Schneider and Kate Pearson had each come down from their own little orbits in New Jersey for different reasons, but because of mutual friends, they began to spend some time together. One night, according to Cindy Wilson, the five of them all went to a Chinese restaurant together, and because they didn't have a ton of money, they pulled together what they had to get a gigantic rum drink with a sterno-based volcano in the middle. And because they'd spent their money on this big drink, they couldn't afford food, so they were just having themselves a great time, and later on that night, they just started jamming together, and that was the beginning of the band. One evening, as the bees themselves tell the story, Schneider had gone to a disco in Atlanta called 2001, and it was a kind of low-end place, so because they didn't have a light show, they were projecting slides of strange things on the walls, like puppies and babies and hot dogs and lobsters on the grill. So he starts riffing out aloud, rock this, rock that, rock lobster. Now, according to Kate Pearson, Ricky Wilson was sitting around the house just noodling around on his guitar when Keith Strickland walked in, and Wilson said, Keith, I wrote the stupidest guitar line and played what's now one of rock's better-known riffs. Give it up. Give it up. 
party. Hey, dear love, Valentine. And the crazy thing is, when he was doing it, he'd recently lost two strings on his guitar, so he's playing it as two parts, one on two strings and one on the other two. So Fred Schneider had this odd little poem that he speaks singing. Ricky Wilson has this four-string griff, and he and Keith Strickland start jamming. Then Cindy Wilson and Kate Pearson start in with the fish sounds. However, the bees were big fans of Yoko Ono, genuinely, and they put in a little bit of a Yoko spin on the fish sounds as homage to her. The first one came out in 1978 on DB Records, and as you can hear, it's a lot faster and a little bit more lo-fi than their second recording, which came out a year later. We were at the beach. Everybody had matching cows. Somebody went under a dock, and there they saw a rock. You might also notice that in addition to the lower overall quality, there's no bass being played on the record. The second single from 1979 from their debut album runs 649 on the album and it's cut down to 452 for the single and cut further down to 357 for the radio airplay. The bass on the second version is provided by Kay Pearson's Korg synthesizer. Now here's the funny part. Remember how I said that when I first saw the B-52s on TV, I thought they sounded sparse, right? Well, as it turns out, that was their opinion of the overall sound of that first album. They recorded it, and when they played it back, that was their first reaction as well. We sound sparse, but they decided that sparse was going to be the hallmark of their sound. And it did catch on in the sense that they did gather enough fans to catch the attention of Saturday Night Live, which, believe it or not, at that time was probably the hippest show on television. It pushed sales of the album and the single, and while it didn't exactly burn up the charts, it did peak at number 56 on the Billboard Hot 100. Having said that, it was a total smash in Canada, making it all the way to the top of the RPM singles chart, and it also reached uh, the top 40 in New Zealand and the UK. But there's one fan of the song and the group that bears special attention. Former Beatle John Lennon had spent close to four years completely withdrawn from the music industry. After the birth of his boy Sean, he spent his time as a self-described house husband, baking bread and taking care of the boy. But in the summer of 1980, while he was in a dance club in Bermuda, he noticed that upstairs in the club they were playing disco, but downstairs they were playing rock lobster. Lennon told Rolling Stone magazine that he heard it for the first time that night. The surreal lyrics and the warbling screams of the fish noises reminded him of Yoko's music, and with good reason. So he decided it was time to break out his guitar and get back in the studio. Lennon said that over a three-week period, he and Yoko wrote about 25 songs, some of which became the Double Fantasy album. That was the last one he would release during his lifetime. Now, of course, the band was thrilled to not only to have inspired John Lennon to get back into the studio, but to get the opportunity to meet their own inspiration, a kind of full-circle thing. In fact, when the B-52s did a 25th anniversary show, Yoko Ono joined them on stage. Here's a clip of that show, and as they get to that down, down break, Schneider introduces Yoko, and she begins singing with them a few moments later.
Now, the story about Rock Lobster inspiring John Lennon to get back in the studio might sound like the stuff of urban legend to you, but you know what? Yoko herself confirmed it in a 2013 interview with SongFacts.com. She said he thought that they could put together an album with her as an equal partner and they wouldn't get the same amount of flack that they'd gotten up until then. And I think that's generally true for Double Fantasy. There's still a little bit of why is she on that record anyway going on. But I'd also argue that Yoko made some adjustments to make her music a little bit more accessible. And so in the long run, there was much less animosity. As far as covers of the song, there are maybe a dozen of them out there in a bunch of different genres, from rockabilly to heavy metal to Hawaiian tiki style. But one of the band's favorites you can't get on a record or a CD, and it's not the entire song. It appears in a fourth season episode of the show Family Guy, titled The Cleveland Loretta Quagmire. Cleveland, sit down. I want to sing a little song that uh, kept me going when I had troubles. at the beach everybody had matching towels somebody went under a dock and there they saw a rock but it wasn't a rock it was a rock lobster And finally, it's worth noting that the band Panic at the Disco sampled the riff for their 2016 song, Don't Threaten Me With a Good Time. Panic's frontman Brendan Urie is a huge fan of the B-52s, and when the sample cleared the legal process, he was a very happy camper indeed. And now it's time to answer our trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you about the song that disappeared from the B-52's album, Whammy. Well, that track would be Don't Worry, which was a tribute to, guess who, Yoko Ono. In fact, it was originally recorded for a tribute album to Yoko for her 50th birthday. John Lennon supposedly started the project and does appear on the album in a track that first appeared on Double Fantasy, but he died before its release in 1984. At any rate, the track wasn't used, so the B-52s added it to their own album, Whammy. Now, while it wasn't a cover in the true sense of the word, they gave some credit to Yoko Ono in the liner notes because it was inspired by her 1971 song, Don't Worry Kyoko, Mommy's Only Looking for a Hand in the Snow. But they didn't realize, unfortunately, that in doing this, they had to give royalties to Yoko. So when Yoko's lawyers found out, and I need to stress that this was their action, not hers, when the lawyers found out that they had done this without consulting them or Yoko, they demanded huge amounts of money, enough that the band nearly went broke. Now, Yoko was always a fan of the band, and so far as I know, maintains good relations with them, so it's no hard feelings there. 
The B-52s agreed to replace the track with Moon 83 on future pressings. Moon 83 is a remix of their earlier song, There's a Moon in the Sky Called the Moon, which was the B-side of Legal Tender. Weirdly enough, the Swedish pressing of the album Whammy doesn't give any credit to Yoko, so the album remained in print, as is in Sweden. And that, my friend, is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone. Share it with your friends. Share it with your enemies. Maybe you'll make friends out of them. Maybe, maybe even leave a rating somewhere. You have no idea how much that boosts the show. And now you can also support the show over at patreon.com slash howgooditis. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we take another look at Christmas songs that don't get the attention they used to. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.